Um, I'm actually going to ask you to just go to the beginning of chapter 9. We're, we're at the end of chapter 9 as we've been working our way through the book of Hebrews. I'd like to do a quick summary of where we, what we've heard in Hebrews chapter 9. And I'm going to start us in uh, verse 1 of chapter 9. So he, Hebrews has been talking about the priestly work of the Lord Jesus Christ, how he is our great high priest who is now in God's presence. He's mediating. He's, he's representing us before the throne of God himself. He has entered into these holy places to represent us. By, he's entered by the, the strength and the power of his own blood, the power of an indestructible life. And um, here in chapter 9, the author of Hebrews has been kind of putting side by side, speaking about the old covenant, this relationship that God had given to the people of Israel through the man Moses, and talked about the, the priestly work and the holy things of the old covenant, and speaking about how those were a picture or a type of the realities that are ours now in Jesus Christ. And if we just scan for just a little bit through chapter 9, it will bring us up to speed. So he, he said in verse 1, even the first covenant had regulations for, or rules for worship and an earthly place of holiness. This was an earthly place of holiness, but this earthly place of holiness where God dwelled among his people was really just a picture, a, a type um, of, of the heavenly realities. In verse 11, it says, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, that's one not made with hands, not of this creation, he entered into, once for all, into the holy places, the holy places in the heavenly realms. And he is in God's presence even now. And then in our passage last week, we heard about how that is evidence that he is the mediator of this new covenant that we have that God has promised, this covenant where God said, I will put my law in your minds and write it on your hearts. I will forgive your iniquities and remember your sins no more. And greatest of all, I will be your God and you will be my people. And that was, that was evidence of that. Um, and then he ended with this. He, he talked about how um, that, that covenant, even the former covenant, was inaugurated with blood, that, that the, the blood of the bulls and the goats were sprinkled on the, the covenantal book. And in the same way, Christ's blood was sprinkled to seal this covenant that we have. And, and we've been, been told that. And it says uh, in verse 21, it, he said... And in the same way, Moses sprinkled with the blood both the tent and the vessels used in worship. And he said, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So he ended speaking about how the old covenant tent and all the holy things were sprinkled with blood to purify them for his people. And our author is going to pick that up as we talk about this passage that Hopefully you hear echoes of that Day of Atonement passage that we just read from Leviticus chapter 16. So if you would, out of adoration for God's word, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. 
I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23 through 28. So hear now the word of God, for God does indeed speak through his holy, infallible, and inerrant word. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to have suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Let's pray together. Father, this is your word, and you reveal to us wonderful things in your word uh, about your son, Jesus Christ, the work he has done and the work he is doing for us even now. And I pray, Father, that you would give us insight and understanding that you might train our hearts to worship you and to give thanks for all that we have in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered with his disciples in the upper room. And Jesus knew that his hour had nearly come, that he was about to be arrested, tried, led to the cross to be crucified as a sacrifice for his people. Um, But this evening that he gathered together, he wanted to prepare his disciples for what would happen after that. And one of the things that he said was that he was going away, but it was better for them. It was good for them that he would go away. And he gave multiple reasons for that, as the Apostle John records for us at um, John 14, 17 uh, to 17. But one, one of the reasons that he gave why this was best was he said this. He said, um, let me just read it. He said, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So he was telling his disciples that he was going to his father's house, returning to his father's house to prepare a place for his people, and that he would come again to take them to himself. Now, I'm sure you've heard that story before, but I wonder if it's ever seemed curious to you that Jesus would need to go and prepare a place in his father's house, and what exactly that means. Now, if we were going to have a bunch of people come stay at our house, we would probably do some kind of renovation construction. We might add some additional bedrooms or bathrooms. Is that what we're to envision is the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven with a hard hat and some blueprints as he's overseeing a work project? 
I don't think so. He said, in my father's house are many rooms. It's already a large house. There's plenty of room for God's people. Or kids, maybe it's kind of like when you have friends over or families coming over and your mom says to you, you need to clean up your room, you need to clean up this house, this place is a mess. I don't think that's it either because this house of the Father is the very holy of holies in heaven where the holy God dwells surrounded by the holy angels. There's no mess or clutter in God's house. And I think if we look at this passage and we see it in the context of the Day of Atonement that we just read from Leviticus chapter 16, I think what we understand is that Jesus prepared the place for us, not simply by purifying us so that we could dwell in God's presence, but by purifying heaven itself so that God would remain there with us. God would remain there with us. God is holy. We are unholy, unclean, and even God's holy abode must be purified with the blood of Christ, that Christ's blood is that purifying thing that cleans the house. And so just as the blood of Christ purifies us from all unrighteousness and prepares us for God's presence, what we see is that so also the blood of Christ, the better blood of Christ, purifies even heaven itself that God will dwell with us. Now Hebrews 9 as we said, it spends a lot of time talking about the priestly work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this passage in particular seems to zoom in with a focal lens on that signature event that the high priest would do, that day of atonement that we read from Leviticus chapter 16. And so we'll look at this passage through the kind of three stages that the priest would go through in this event. The priestly entrance into the holy place, the priestly work of sacrifice and purification, and then the priestly return to his people. So we begin by the priestly entrance. The Day of Atonement was a unique event, a special event in the life of Israel. It was something that happened one day out of the year. It was something that only one man did, the high priest, the high priest who was a man who descended from the line of Aaron, Moses' brother, and he on that day would need to himself to prepare in order to go into the holy place. He would need to um, cleanse his body by bathing, and then he would have to clothe himself, as we read, with special garments, garments that marked him as holy to the Lord, even the holy garments that uh, the Lord prescribed. And then, and only then, could he enter into God's presence in the most holy place. But as we've heard, the, the earthly tent, while that was a necessary thing for Israel, that was merely a copy of the heavenly realities, the heavenly things. And But as verse 24 says, Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He has entered into that presence even now, and that is where he is. But once he entered into the presence of God, 
he had to do it. Uh, our text had said earlier, he, he could not enter without blood. He needed sacrifices. And the sacrifices served two purposes, atonement and purification. So students, atonement is an important word that you need to understand. You'll see it throughout scripture. And put simply, atonement means to make a payment for something that was done that was wrong. A payment for something that done, was done that was wrong. So think of it, you're, you're out in the yard and you're playing catch with a ball. The ball goes through a window of a car or the house and the window's broken and you, from your own money, need to pay to fix the window. That is, in, in a sense, an atonement for the wrong that was done through the breaking of the window. And the high priest was charged by bringing in sacrifices which were a sin offering, making atonement for the sins of the people. It was a payment for the sins of the people. Now, sin is an offense against God himself. And we all sin. God's people have always sinned. And the high priest was required to bring in a sacrifice, to have this sacrifice to pay, in essence, a payment for the sins of the people. You might ask, well, what is the payment that somebody could pay for sins against God? Well, you might remember that God's words, God in his words said that sin requires death. Paul says the wages of sin are death. The Old Testament prophets said the soul that sins shall die. So the thing that would pay the penalty was a life, or rather a death. Which is why they would sacrifice a living creature. God, in his grace, allowed a substitute for the sinner. He allowed the, the people of God to bring a bull or a goat to sacrifice this life of this animal they had raised in substitute for the sins of the people. So that was one thing. It was the atonement, a payment for the sins done. But the other thing, which hopefully you caught this as we were going through the book of that passage in Leviticus, is that the sacrifice was also for purification. Purification. Now, if we're going to clean our house, we're probably going to use some kind of sweet-smelling cleaner that we bought from the store, and you're going to use that. But in God's law, the means of cleaning God's things and making them fit for worship was blood. Blood was the cleansing agent that God permitted. And so those sacrifices, they would bring in the blood, and they would use the blood to cleanse the things of God. And what were they cleansing the things of God from? Well, our passage from Leviticus said it was because of the uncleanness of God's people. Our sin, the uncleanness due to our sin uh, threatened to infect God's things and make them unclean and unholy and defiled. And that's a big deal because God is holy and God cannot dwell among an unholy people unless there is purification. And so the blood was brought in to purify God's things so that God would not abandon his people, which would be tragic. But the remedy was the blood of the sacrifice. Now, students, hopefully when you were, we were going through Leviticus, you caught the fact that there were two 
steps of the sacrifices. There was first a sacrifice that was done for the priest and his family, and a second for the people of God. The first in each of those sacrifices was affecting this atonement, this payment, and also affecting purification. The first thing that the priest did was he sacrificed a bull. He killed the bull, and Leviticus said that he uh, would do this as a sin offering to make atonement for himself, for the priest and his family. The priest as a sinful man needed to make atonement before he could come into God's presence. And then he would bring the blood of the bull, and he would go into the holy place, and he would sprinkle the blood seven times on the front of the Ark of the Covenant. That God required the Ark of God, the mercy seat, to be purified from the uncleanness of the priest himself. And then once he did that, he would go back out, and then the people of God would bring two goats. They bring two goats, and it said that he would cast, they would cast lots for the goats. So kids, casting lots was a way in the Old Testament that God made decisions for his people. Think of it like uh, flipping a coin or rolling dice. God, uh, Proverbs says that the lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And so the people would bring two goats, and God himself would choose which of those goats he would accept on their behalf. And the priest would sacrifice that goat to make atonement for the people of Israel. Leviticus said this. He said, Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place. Oh, I'm sorry. He would bring in the, the blood. He would put, sprinkle the blood on top of the mercy seat and then in front of the mercy seat. And then he would make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he would do with the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. So he was purifying the holy things so that God would not abandon his people. But beloved, all those things were merely pointing ahead to the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, something that we often miss. And when we look at the work of Jesus Christ, things get really interesting when we compare it to, to this thing, uh, this, this event uh, that, uh, in the Day of Atonement for three primary reasons. First, there was the Lord Jesus Christ offered one sacrifice rather, rather than two. The, the former priest offered that bull and then the goat, one for himself and one for the other person. But the Lord Jesus Christ gave one sacrifice simply of himself. We might ask, well, why would that be? Why only one? Why not, why not two? Well, the easy answer could be that the Lord Jesus Christ was perfectly sinless. He had no need to offer a sacrifice for his own sins. He had no reason to be atoned for, whereas God's people were. So the offering of himself sacrificed that one sacrifice, and there was no need for the other one. But beloved, I think that's, that's not correct. Um, Jesus said that not one iota, not one jot of the law would pass away. He would fulfill all of them. And brothers and sisters, what you need to understand is that the Lord Jesus Christ became your sin. God made him 
who knew no sin to be sin. Jesus Christ became your hatred and your bitterness and your adulterous thoughts and your wasted time and your foolishness. He became those things. And in him, your sin was truly put to death, was truly sacrificed. The reason why there was only one sacrifice was because in him, he sacrificed the sin that he had become and atoned, and in so doing, atoned for the sins of his people. Beloved, in Jesus Christ, you and I were sacrificed and put to death in Christ Jesus, and a full atonement has been made. The full payment for every sin that you have ever made has been accomplished. So that's one thing, one sacrifice instead of two. The second thing is our author tells us that it was, a, it was one true sacrifice to end all sacrifices. So we'll pick this up again a little bit more when we look at Hebrews chapter 10 in a couple weeks. But the high priest in Israel, this day of atonement was every, every year. Every year he had to go in and re- he had to re-up his atonement for the sins of the people. They were, this was a glimpse of God's perfect atonement in Jesus Christ. But uh, verse 25 says, uh, he didn't enter to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly from the foundation of the world. So his, his logic is, well, Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. And the Savior of the world is the high priest who offered himself as a sacrifice. And there must be payment made. And if this is the only payment that pays, then most certainly this is done in, in, in one, one shot, one sacrifice to end them all. Because if it was a partial sacrifice like the sacrifices of old, then he, Jesus, would have had to offer himself as a sacrifice every day, every moment, from the foundation of the world until the end of time as he paid for every sacrifice of his people. That is the only way that it could have been accomplished. So he would have had to die before he was even born, which is ridiculous, and that's his point. It's ridiculous. So most certainly, this sacrifice of himself satisfied these things. It says, but, verse 26, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It's not the sacrifice of another, but the sacrifice of himself, a powerful sacrifice that puts away, that pays this price for every sin of every one of his people from the dawn of time until the end of time. Beloved, that is good news. Every sin of yours, every offense against the Almighty God that you haven't even committed has been fully paid for by Jesus Christ. There's no, 
There's nothing, you don't have to worry that you are going to have to pay something for something you have not yet done. You don't have to worry that you have to pay something for something you have done because that was paid by Jesus Christ. This, this work of Christ is ours when we accept the atonement of Jesus Christ that he did on our behalf. Your sins, my sins, are truly forgiven. So that's the second thing, that this true sacrifice. But finally, he, Jesus didn't go into God's presence merely to, or he didn't offer himself merely to make atonement, if, as if that's not enough. But also, he, his better blood purifies heaven itself. Notice what it says in verse 22. This is before our passage. He says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copy of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices with these. Jesus Christ shed his blood so that he could purify heaven itself. He has, his blood has sprinkled God's holy abode to purify it. Just as the high priest would take the blood of the goat and the blood of the bull and sprinkle the holy things, Jesus has gone and sprinkled his blood on the heavenly realities. And this isn't to say that heaven was somehow impure. That's not the point. The point is we bring the impureness into God's presence. And he has gone ahead of us to sprinkle it, to purify it, so that when we come, God will stay. <laughs> God will never forsake us. He will remain. He welcomes us with open arms. And so, beloved, in Jesus Christ, through his work, he has purified us from all unrighteousness and prepared us for glory, but he has also prepared glory itself so that we can enter and God will remain with us forever and ever. So that's the priestly work, which leads us to the priestly return. Now, the Lord had given Moses and Aaron strict rules about what the high priest was to do in his priestly work on the Day of Atonement, and there was a threat of death if it was not conducted correctly. And Jewish history tells us that the people of God would gather in eager anticipation when the high priest would go into the holy place to wait for his return, because his return would signify to his people, to God's people, that the that the sacrifice was accepted. And it was a, a means of rejoicing. There was a Jewish scribe by the name of Joshua ben Sira who lived about 200 years before the birth of Christ. And he penned this to describe the return of the high priest. How glorious he was 
when the people gathered round him as he came out of the inner sanctuary, like the morning star among the clouds, like the moon when it is full, like the sun shining upon the temple of the Most High, and like the rainbow gleaming in glorious clouds, like roses in the days of the first fruits, like lilies by a spring of water. And he goes on further than that. It was exuberant rejoicing because the high priest has come. God has accepted the sacrifice. Atonement has been made. We are forgiven and God remains with us. And beloved, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, it will be with greater glory and majesty and rejoicing than even this. And he will return. Verse 27 says, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Beloved, it is appointed by God for man to die once, and Jesus Christ has died. He has been raised to new life, and he will never die again. He will never die again. And he has completed the work of dealing with sin. He has set that aside. And yet he will return from the heavenly temple to gather his people for himself with rejoicing, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He's coming to truly and finally save you and me. And beloved, since these things are true, since these things are true, I think there's a few things that we can confidently say. We'll say four things. First of all, we can confidently say that Jesus Christ himself has prepared glory for you and for me. He has prepared a place for us in his Father's house. He has atoned for our sacrifice or our sins and made us fit to be able to enter, and he has purified God's dwelling place. We can safely enter God's presence, and God can safely remain there with us without affecting his holiness. And so we ought to, we can, we should enter his gates with loud shouts of thanksgiving and loud shouts of joy, because we are, that is our eternal home. We can dwell with him forever and ever with full confidence. Second thing is, beloved, we have to see the severity of our sin. The severity of our sin. Our sin has been dealt with. Your sin has been dealt with. And yet, we all know that that sin remains in our hearts. And it will on this side of glory. But beloved, do not trifle with your sin. Do not play around with it. Put it to death. It is not only destructive to you, it is offensive to the Almighty God. It is heinous enough to keep us away from him, separate us from him forever and ever, and nothing less than the perfect blood of Jesus Christ could pay the penalty for one of your sins. And nothing less than the perfect blood of Christ could purify the holiness of God's holy temple 
so that we could dwell with him. And those things have been done. That blood has been shed. That sacrifice has been made, beloved. Do not make excuses for your sin. God hates your sin. You should too. Jesus Christ has set you free to walk in righteousness, to put those sins to death. So find the joy in walking in the newness of life and the freedom that we have been given in Jesus Christ. The third thing is, notice what the Spirit says in verse 27. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Beloved, we, many of us fear death. It's this big unknown, and we avoid thinking about it, and we avoid talking about it. Every one of us, beloved, will die. It is a certainty that should the Lord Jesus Christ tarry from returning, every one of us will meet our death. And you don't know the day or the hour of your death. Friends of my parents just lost their 35-year-old son uh, who died of a freak accident while working on a freighter in the Great Lakes. And he left behind his wife and his, his three children. And beloved... Each and every one of us is a mere freak accident or an unpredictable disease or who knows what from facing our own death. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, beloved, repent of your sins and, find, and put your faith in him. Don't wait another day. Don't wait another day. You may not have another day. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of God's mercy. I implore you, in the mercies of God, seek refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ. For there is no other name under heaven by which man ought to be saved. And God himself offers his son to you as the refuge for all eternity. But fourth, beloved, for those of us who have put our faith in Christ, we must eagerly wait for him. It says, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Beloved, our Savior, Jesus Christ, is coming back. We ought to be so heavenly minded that we are of earthly good, that our hearts are stayed upon our heavenly home so that we can live with perseverance in the midst of this life. Beloved, that is our hope, our, that our Savior is coming and he will truly take us home. Now in that upper room, beloved, Jesus said, if I go and I prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas, in typical Thomas fashion, said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Beloved, Jesus Christ has gone to prepare a place for you. 
and for me. And he is coming again to take us to himself, that where he is, we will be with him also. And he himself is the way to glory. And so, beloved, let us put our faith squarely in Jesus Christ and what he has done for him, what done for us. Let us walk by faith in him and let us rest in him as we eagerly await his return. He will most certainly bring us to glory for our eternal home, for his, his, his glory and our rejoicing forever and ever. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you have loved us enough to do all the work to bring us to yourself. Thank you that you have paid the penalty for the sins that you have seen that were odious and heinous in your sight. Thank you that you have purified us. And thank you that you have appointed Jesus Christ to be our high priest to purify even your house that we might enter in. Lord, help us to Help us to prepare ourselves for glory. Help us to walk by faith and help us to do so with eager hearts. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.